0: Today's sermon is called God is at Work in the Darkness. It's based on Philemon, verses 15 to 25. Taken from today's new international version. It's for the people of Clarny Park, Mennonite Brethren Church, May 10th, 2020. Today's Mother's Day. Friends, the Lord is among us. Indeed, He is. First off, I just want to wish all of our mothers and those who have been mothers to us happy Mother's Day. As a parent, I do marvel at the work that God has done in and through those who are and have been mothers to us. Thank you for helping us to see and know and understand that we are loved and that we are precious because of whose we are, and understanding that all of us, made in the image of the Creator, are His works of art. Psalm 139 verses 13 to 18 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How amazing are your thoughts concerning me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So, friends, happy Mother's Day to all of us who are mothers to many. Indeed, I've heard it said that God is an artist and we are his paintings. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But sometimes I wonder in my life, at least, if God is the kind of artist like Jackson Pollock, an American abstract expressionist painter. He was widely noticed for his technique of pouring or splashing liquid household paint onto a horizontal surface. It was called the drip technique, and enabled him to view and paint his canvases from all angles. He used the force of his whole body to paint, often in a frenetic dancing style. Now, some folk appreciated his art, praising the immediacy of Pollock's creations, while many others curiously thought that Pollock's art was no more than random dots and splashes on canvas and some of us find that kind of art hard to appreciate with its random and seemingly lack of patterns or cohesiveness now none of us it seems can very often look at the details of our lives and see exactly where they fit into God's larger plans Now, if we try, we'll either become grandiose, imagining that we are at the center of God's universe, or we might become depressed, wondering whether there is any pattern or meaning to it at all. From time to time, though, if we look with eyes of faith and place our trust in him, we can match, we can catch but a glimpse of something of what God is about, of what the divine artist has in his mind. And when we catch that glimpse, we are wise to pay attention. The interesting thing is that no matter what kind of plans or machinations we have for our own lives, we must always have a perhaps or a maybe attached to those very plans. Our current COVID-19 pandemic is one very real example for all of us. One caution I want to leave us with is that we should never trust someone who tells us that they are 100% certain that God wants us to do one thing or another in particular. Now, I'm not referring to orthodox Christian belief or ethic. I'm not suggesting we live outside of loving God with all we are and all we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We can be 100% certain that God wants us to believe in Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his death and his resurrection. God certainly wants us to stay connected to him through prayer and reading the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Bible. God certainly wants us to be honest with others and faithful to our marriage commitments and our social obligations. He wants us to be generous to those in need. The list goes on. There is no doubt about any of that. What I'm talking about is God's particular will In a specific situation where we might face a tricky decision of sorts. In this last section of the very short letter to Philemon, Paul is certain of what Philemon must do now. But if you pay attention, you'll notice that Paul allows for a perhaps or a maybe. So let's briefly recap. Onesimus, Philemon's slave, has run away. And not only has Onesimus run away from his master and his household, he has also stolen money to fund his travel far and away. Onesimus encounters Paul, becomes a Christ follower himself, and now serves Paul while Paul is a prisoner under house arrest. Paul is appealing to Philemon to both forgive Onesimus' betrayal, accept him back into the household, and now Call him brother in Christ, ultimately requesting Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom. So if you haven't yet opened your Bibles to today's passage, I invite you to do so now. Now, Philemon is a very short letter, just a couple of pages in your Bible, in between Titus and Hebrews. We're going to read from Philemon verses 15 to 25 this morning. Join with me. Verse 15. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How interesting. How the section opens up. Go back with me to verse fifteen. Paul is certain of what Philemon must do, yet even he is not so bold as to suggest a direction one hundred percent. He begins this next section with perhaps. Uh, maybe. And this word may actually be the most important sentence in the whole letter. Just supposing, Paul says, just supposing God had a purpose, not just for you at this moment, but even in the fact that Onesimus ran away in the first place. Now, that's an interesting idea. We might remember from last week's message that Philemon would be feeling the pressure from the culture to vindicate himself as a wealthy person of considerable means. Yet Paul doesn't even refer to the running away itself. Merely Onesimus is being separated from you in the beginning of verse 15. Uh, to quote a cliche, God moves in mysterious ways, as Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind. One might recall the wind, rain, and thunderstorm we had on Tuesday night. We can hear the sound, but we can't tell where it's coming from, where it's going. John chapter 3 verse 8. So now, Paul suggests, perhaps God has been secretly at work, even though what seemed like sad, unfortunate, or even wicked human actions, and they all might have been just that, in order to bring about a situation which would shine his light, not only in Colossae, but around the world ever after. And like a Pollock painting, it might seem random at first, but one has to take a step or two or three back to actually appreciate the work and the masterpiece that it actually is. Does this seem strange? Can God work through things which are themselves terrible or wicked, evil or wrong? In this case, it seems just so. The greatest act of rescuing that God ever did, and in person, was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. For his followers, this was the greatest tragedy of their lives, and for Jesus' enemies, it was an act of folly, of wickedness, and shame. The enemy thought that he had won. Yet throughout the New Testament, all this is put together so that the cross of Jesus, the instrument of capital punishment and execution, becomes the very point at which God, in sovereign love, takes up the pain and the sin of the world, and he deals with it himself. He who knew no sin, became sin for us. That, in fact, is exactly what Paul had in mind in this passage. Now, here's the interesting part. Paul does not mention the cross here. Rather, he applies it. On the cross, Jesus hung with his arms outstretched between heaven and earth, making a bridge upwards and downwards between God and humanity, and from side to side between all who ward with one another on earth. And Paul has grasped the truth that so many of us have missed, myself included, that Jesus' achievement of reconciliation is put into effect when his people follow in his footsteps together. When we follow Jesus and allow the cross of Christ to shape our own lives, the love of God is set free to change and heal in ways that we cannot at that moment begin to even imagine, almost like looking at a piece of abstract painting. Do you see what Paul sees? Do you see in this passage what Paul has done? He has established that he and Philemon, in verse 17, are partners in the gospel. That is, they share a common life, common goals, a common way of life. And Paul has also established that he himself and Onesimus Two, they are bonded together in Christian love. And so what is the result, if it indeed is the case, that Philemon has every legal right to be angry with Onesimus, to punish him, perhaps even have Onesimus put to death? Well, Paul will stand in between them. And what will this achieve? Paul will represent them to one another. He will substitute for Onesimus. Look with me at verse 19. Paul will pay Philemon what Onesimus owes, reminding Philemon precisely by telling him somewhat humorously he's not going to remind him that Philemon too owes Paul his very life. Paul will stand in the place of risk and pain with his own arms outstretched towards the slave and the owner, both friends and brothers, Paul will stand at one of the pressure points of the human race from that day until very recently. Jesus, through Paul, will close the gap, not just between Fleeman and Onesimus, but between the two sides of the great divide that ran through and in some places still runs through in the life of the world. Paul, firmly rooted in the saving gospel of the cross of Jesus, is, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, entrusted with the gospel of reconciliation. This is what it looks like in practice, friends. What Paul asks for from Philemon in verse 17 is that Onesimus be accepted back into Philemon's household, both in his former job and as a brother in Christ. Now that is already... As all three of them know, far more than what most owners or slaves would ever dream of. But Paul hints at something more. Paul says in verse 21, I know that you will do even more than I ask or say. This can only mean giving back Onesimus' freedom. And like the prodigal son who only asks to be a hired servant in his father's house, He's to be given the astonishing welcome of a son. You can find that story in Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. And as with the prodigal son, there will be no doubt be some who grumble. Hey, you know what? That's not fair. Why should Onesimus be rewarded for running away? What has he done to deserve it? But friends, isn't that what grace is all about? It's somewhat scandalous. That's what God's love is actually like. It's what God's love has always been like. Friends, let's read our Gospel over and over again and see for ourselves. And then let's ask ourselves, where in our worlds, in our faith fellowship, in our families, in our workplaces, maybe the places that we live and recreate, Where is the healing and restorative grace of God most sorely needed in our own lives, in our relationships? And like in a masterpiece painting, how can God's people, how can we stand in the middle of the picture that God is painting, holding out our arms to people on either side, bringing together those divided by large and small spaces, ready to be peacemakers and reconcilers, all in the name of God. Of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, here are some questions for us to consider. The letter to Philemon offers us an alternate and countercultural way of thinking and consideration when it comes to tricky problems, as we saw in the scriptures this morning. Number one, how does faith in the power of Jesus' reconciling work in our own lives? How does it affect how we make decisions. In other words, how does our faith in Jesus inform our actions? Number two, how does using encouragement and persuasion without violating the person's responsibility and integrity work in contrast to coercive power and brute force? We saw how Paul appealed to Philemon's heart Instead of ordering him to do something, he used persuasion, he used encouragement. How can we employ those ways in our very own lives? And how do we do so without manipulating the other person? Number three, how do we use or employ power in our decision making, especially when it seems far easier to do so than trying to persuade the other? Friends, let us participate in the masterpiece of God's plan. Sometimes we do not know where those dots are going to line up. But we need to also trust in the Maker, our Creator, that He is at work both in us and around us and through us. Thanks be to God. Amen.